Welcome back to another podcast, The Knockdown. This is Alan Shipnuck, joined by my frequent wingman, Michael Bamberger. Michael? Wingman, are used, a word I use to describe Rob McNamara from time to time. Yes, Tiger Woods' wingman. Do you think that's the right term for, for Rob? I would call him a, a chief of staff, maybe a manservant. Um, that's quite a range between chief of staff and manservant. He fills many roles. Um, so... It's Sunday night here at Pebble Beach. We just had an epic U.S. It's, Open. Well, it's still Sunday night. It's almost yeah. midnight. We're right yeah. there. We need to we need to enlighten the listeners about the the last couple hours. Uh, describe what we've just well, been. We've been through. at this for a long time. That was a scene we've never seen before. We've seen glimpses of it, but just to be smack dab in the middle of it, uh, we went to the uh, pub. What is the room called? Where the tap room. Were? The tap room uh, at the lodge at Pebble Beach. Uh, Alan knows the the whole landscape very well, having worked here for how many years as a kid? Three summers. Three summers. The best three summers of my life. Wow. Well, we were looking for a quiet place to tape this podcast. We figured by after 10 o'clock in the tap room, it would be, it would be settled down. Quiet. It was not for all the right reasons. That's right. We walk in, and there's a huge table, and at that table is Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, various significant others and family members. And they've, they've told us they're setting up a, a large party in the back. I had an inkling that might be for the new champion, Gary Woodland, but we weren't sure. And lo and behold, the first person we saw was Gary Woodland lookalike. His dad couldn't be nicer. Yes, chatted him up. Woodland comes in, standing ovation. Everyone's drinking out of the trophy. But then it was, it was like being in a private club. Um, Joe Buck came through, Brad Faxon. Former USJ president. Tom O'Toole. Tom O'Toole. It was, and sundry others. It, we, we just were in the right place. Although it, wasn't, it wasn't luck because we had a feeling the top room would be a fun place to do the podcast. Yeah. But it was so loud. The winner's caddy, Brendan Little. Yes. Who, who gave us some great little tidbits about that shot on 17. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a fun experience to kind of recognize yeah. that, and this is something we talked about in real time, so much discussion about Jordan Spieth and his caddy and that whole controversy. Justin Thomas missed the cut. He's had a wrist injury. His season's in tumult. And yet these guys are just hanging out, having fun, drinking, goofing off. I think sometimes we overanalyze this and we we think that, that these players are defined by their scores. And sometimes they are, sure. But mostly they're just young guys living the dream, having fun. And what's the big deal? Exactly. And... Uh... It was an appropriate level of fun. It wasn't debauchery. It wasn't, uh, it was, they just were enjoying their lives and enjoying, you know, the the other guys didn't win. They tried hard and didn't win. They were celebrating the guy who did win. And uh, we were asking the question, you know, who are Gary Woodland's close friends? And we would not have known, but there we saw that he obviously has a close friendship with Justin Thomas and uh, Jordan Spieth. Well, it was cute. Spieth was throwing like, actual spitballs at Woodland. Did you catch that? He was rolling up the little... And and then they, they both went, Thomas and Spieth at various times went over and sat with the champ. They were sharing drinks and yeah. some some you could, some you real close conversation. No doubt, they, they know how his life is going to change. They both have won major championships at a younger age, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm sure there was a little wisdom that was being imparted. And I think also there's an, there's an undercurrent to Gary Woodland and you could speak about this better than I, since you're semi-skillful at the game. But I think basketball, skill at basketball, puts you at a higher level. And Dustin Johnson has it. 
uh, Tiger thinks he has it. Joe LaCava probably has it more. And this Gary Woodland had it in spades, good enough that he could nearly play big-time college basketball. Uh, and I don't think there's any question these golfers all really uh, revere the basketball players. Yeah, I mean, if you were to rank professional athletes by cachet, I think NBA guys are the very top, there's no doubt. But And, of course, a lot of them love to play the game, whether it's Steph Curry Andre Iguodala, you go down the list. There's a lot of cross pollination between the sports now, and so, um, but it, it it was interesting because you mentioned Dustin Johnson. He he's he's always been held up as sort of the paragon of of this this new breed of golfer who's who's big and strong and tall and supple and. Um, but there was a poll a few years ago about who's the best athlete on tour, and the players chose Gary Woodland. Like yeah. they know, uh, he, he doesn't have that oily gate that Dustin does, but um, Woodland is something special. So what do you think about the champ? Well, you know, I've always liked him without really knowing much about him, but I've always just liked his manner. The few times I've talked to him, I've always found him terrific. But I thought everything you saw on the golf course this week uh, just revealed him to be uh, an outstanding person, a disciplined person, a smart, caring person. But really his his post-win press conference where people do really do reveal themselves. Uh, you think they might not, but actually uh, they do. But he was so thorough and patient and showed a lot of heart. Uh, that young woman with uh, the Special Olympic athlete uh, from the Phoenix Open, he he talked about her, his special special friendship. But, you know, it, it is a, an atypical friendship that he has with her. And you could see that it means something to him. Also, he's... Uh, He's articulate. Uh, his thoughts are really, uh, they're well-considered thoughts. I was deeply impressed by him. I had just a little chit-chat with his uh, father. Uh, and uh, the same with him. He's just, you know, we, we, we talked about this uh, earlier. Um, he's not a brand. He's just a guy. He's just a, you know, just, I don't know. He's kind of like what you wish more of modern life was like. He is good at his job. He appreciates the fact he has this job. And uh, I don't think he thinks he's special because he's good at golf. Um, I was just very, very taken with how he played and how he carried himself uh, after after winning. And part of that is because he's been kicked around by the game. You know, he, coming into today, he was 0 for 7 at closing out 54-hole lead on the PGA Tour. He knows how hard it is to win. And just because you can, you have the highest club head speed on tour, and just because you can dunk a basketball with either hand, that's not the same as being able to manage your emotions, think your way f- around for four plus hours, and all the little things. And he did that beautifully. He, he never cracked. Even you know, and to do that in a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach with Justin Rose and Brooks Koepka chasing you and Louis Oosthuizen uh, is really a significant accomplishment. I, I was betting against it Saturday night, and I'm glad to say, that, you know, I'm glad to say that I was wrong. But I really did not think that he would be able to uh, to withstand it. I thought he'd pull a Dustin Johnson, only because no matter how supremely gifted you are at the game, that is what most people do. They they lose one before they win one, or they lose several before they win one, and he didn't. Well, and this is a point that uh, Brad Faxon brought up is when we were chatting with him in the tap room that. Pebble Beach has not had that many iconic shots other than on the 17th hole where Nicholas hit his one iron and Watson chipped in. You think about Tiger's victory, maybe it's that, that sixth hole out of the rough on Friday. You know, it's not a fair fight from Raja. But um, Woodland gave us basically three 
incredible exclamation points. That that three wood on fourteen, that is as macho as it gets. I mean, that is a do or die shot. If you miss that left, you could make a seven. And if you come up short and you plug it in the face of that bunker, you can make a 10. <laughs> and he pulled it off. And then 17, clipping that ball off the putting surface. Now, he made it sound easy, but you can skull that shot. Into the ocean. You can skull that shot into the ocean. Yeah. And then, of course, that walk-off birdie putt in 18. I mean, in the span of an hour plus, he gave us three all-time highlights for the Pebble Beach U.S. Open. So It was interesting to hear him say they had no other shot on 17 short of leaving himself a 20-foot putt, so he never really thought about another shot, which shows he's got the mind of an elite athlete, even though he was 0 for 7 54 hole uh, leads uh, going in today. But to never think about another shot, never even consider what can go wrong, uh, that's a mindset that the ordinary person doesn't have. Now, as it happens, he had that shot once before this week, and he talked about actually practicing that shot. But no one can practice that shot for when Brooks Kepp is going up 18. I don't think he had made... I don't recall the timing. Had he made par yet on 18, or was he still looking at a possible birdie? So I was out there. Kepka was looking over his birdie putt, and a ripple went through the crowd. It was people watching on their phones that shot on 17 from Woodland. You're so far away at that point. The second shot? The second shot. And, but, and Kepka, it was, it was, it was interesting because he, he immediately snapped his head to the leaderboard. I think he thought the number had changed. So he was going to see if they posted a bogey or birdie or whatever. That wasn't it. So Kepka didn't really know what happened. And it was an ambiguous little, it was like, a, ooh, ah, ooh. Like, I was standing right there. I didn't know what it meant. I was not watching on my phone. So I thought that it was quite possible that, were you near 18 green at the time? I was right by 18 green. I was yeah, I was on 17 green myself. So uh, so uh, Kepka did not know if it was. It could have been a birdie or a bogey, and right. that that added that put a lot of tension into his putt because if of course if Woodland make, had made bogey and Brooks makes that putt, they're tied, and uh, so that was a cool moment. And you could make double. Kepka could easily have made four, and and uh, Woodland easily could have made. Five, you know, you could screw that thing up. I mean, this whole thing could have changed very quickly. Yeah. It's kind of funny. You look at a three-shot win, but it didn't really feel like a three-shot win uh, at, at the time. No, I mean, it was tense. And Kepka, I mean, how about that charge? You know, birding for the first five holes. And sandwiching there was the most spectacular shot I hit all day to save par on two. I mean, it was like, here comes Brooks. And, yeah. and you could feel that energy. And he's become such a monster in this game. And again, Woodland just shrugged it off. Like, okay, he took he took a few roundhouse uppercuts and he just kept going. I mean, it's it's one thing to beat Justin Rose, who was kind of just hanging on by his fingernails, but when you have the best player in the game putting on a charge like that, I mean, Woodland never flinched. That was impressive. Yeah. Um, did uh, when you were on? No, I was saying on eighteen T when uh, Kepkin played. I thought he hit driver, and I was surprised to him three wood. I just thought, why wouldn't you hit driver at that point? Because, you know, you could be hitting a six iron into that green. You might be hitting a seven iron. You know, a Brooks Kepka slice driver, you know, started down that left-hand side, you're going to be 60 or 70 yards past that tree. Uh, but were, were people talking about that on 18 at all? Yeah, sure, because then he, then he, was, he left himself with a three iron. and That's he, a lot of club to hit into that pin. Right, he, he hit a great shot, but it just, it just came in too hot. He, he couldn't hold the green. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I think... Players were hitting three wood a lot this week. Um, I can see that under normal circumstances. I know. It's just not a normal circumstance. I think part of it, it was he didn't know exactly what was going on behind him. And so maybe he was playing for a woodland mistake. 
I think I think you got to treat that hole at that point. I mean, this is not out of the Tiger playbook, and Tiger, of course, is the best of this. Tiger, the Tiger playbook would be just play it for a four, but you had to think that you, you kept. You have to think that Woodland's probably going to make a four there if he has to himself. Yeah. Uh, so given that, what's your best chance to make a three or a tap and four at the worst would be, you know, kill the driver. I mean, this guy can kill a driver like nobody's business. Uh, I agree. It was surprising, and maybe that was maybe just a little slight capitulation from Brooks. I mean, he made a couple bogeys in the middle of the round, and he he needed coming down the stretch. He needed to make a putt. He couldn't make a putt. I mean, he finished with six straight pars. I, it might have been just a little bit saying, "Okay, I just gotta get this ball in the fairway. I can't make a three or a four if I don't hit the fairway. So I'm just gonna hit this fairway no matter what." But as you say, it was probably the wrong play. But even even the mighty Brooks Kepka is is can have a little self doubt, and I think the three was just like, okay, I've got to get this in the fairway, and so I'm I'm I'm, I'm yeah, not gonna. I bet it wasn't self doubt in his point. I bet it was more like what you were saying before. It's just game plan. You know, I've hit three wood. Everyone, you know, this is a three wood shot. I'm not going to change now. Uh, um, and that serves a lot of these guys very. Tiger's the king of that. We've seen Tiger be so stubborn in his club selection, including, well, not to go back to the Masters, but just briefly, uh, including his playing of the fifth hole uh, uh, at Augusta this year. These guys get stubborn in sort of their, that's why they get great in the first place. Uh, they're not trying wacky things uh, from one dude to the other. What about, but uh, this is just a weird kind of uh, segue, but uh, how about the quality of these greens? I mean, they talk so much about how difficult it is to put Poenia golf greens Greens were spectacular. I would love to put greens. Like anybody would love to put greens like that. No, Pebble was was mint. I mean, it was it was in great shape. And part of it was because they put so much freaking water on the golf course. I, I was talking to uh, a, a basically a superintendent at another golf course here in in the forest, and all the courses they share water, and so they all get reports. And if if you're if you're a course and you're doing a project and you need a lot of water to grow in some new grass, then everyone will pitch in and give you a little extra water. And so, but there's the, these reports go out daily, so everyone knows who's using what. And uh, this gentleman was explaining that generally, normal course of play, Pebble Beach will get a little over 200,000 gallons of water. And in the run up, the days before this opened, they were putting over 400,000 gallons. And so, we had warm temperatures. Now, obviously, they were afraid of the course getting too crispy, but they overdid it, and so it was soft. And then we got our, the traditional June weather with the marine layer, which we just call fog around here, and cool temperatures, moisture in the air. They could never dry the course out. So I I don't want to go too deep on the setup because I think I think it's been kicked around all week. But to me, they the USGA had to err on the side of caution with all the – all the hand wringing and and all the bitchy name calling from the players and they they couldn't push this course to the edge like and it would have been a lot more fun a firm fast fiery pebble beach is so much fun and we never got that and to me that was a little disappointing it doesn't take away from from woodland's victory but uh it, the course never had any teeth you could still make bogeys of course there was a lot of rough and it's small greens and there's an ocean and it wasn't a, a total pushover, but I just felt like there was not that imminent sense of danger that you would like at a U.S. Open. What was your take on the setup? Well, I, I'm, I want to commend you for uh, not using the phrase uh, microclimate, uh, a term you often hear around here. <laughs> uh, how often in a given week, living in Carmel as you do, might, might you hear the word microclimate? 
Only from out-of-towners. Oh, but interesting. Yeah. Okay. Marine layer. I can sort of handle marine layer, but no, no fog one, really does. Yeah, no one ever the same thing with many layer. fewer letters. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who's ever actually had to set type, fog is better than marine layer. It saves you a lot of time. One million percent. Um, and to, to tweet as well. The Yes, the, uh, yes, the, I wouldn't really know, but I can pretend to know. <laughs> the... Um, that's some of the most important reporting of the week. It was your water report? Uh, uh, because certainly USJ is not going to admit to have put down so much water. And without knowing your uh, your reporting about that, I would have just assumed that it was because you've had so much foggy, damp weather. Uh, even though you have had some sunny, hot weather as well. Uh, so yes, there were. Maybe they were. You know, it was an abundance of caution. They, they and, and they overdid it. Having said that. As we've said many times, it's an outscore game with weather. It's an unpredictable game. Um, the course looked beautiful. It's set up beautifully. The fairways, I thought, were appropriate. Some people say they were too narrow. I think they were they were just totally appropriate. Where they lost the game was by allowing the equipment to get where it is. That's why the score, that's why there were, how many guys were under par for this week? A dozen lot. more? A lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Pep, Tiger winning here in 2000 at 12 under, that's an iconic performance. One the, guy. I know. By 15 by shots. And a bunch, by 15 shots. Know, Woodland finishes 13. I mean, it was just that course was crispy, and it was a monster. Right. That's how good Tiger played. Right. And this course just was it was different. I mean. You uh, can't compare uh, Woodland's uh, scores with Tiger no. for a minute. Tiger played a much more demanding golf course. Of course. But it it's, it is it is the bitter irony is that the USGA's – malfeasance and just complete lack of oversight on equipment and distance gain has created this quandary that the old course and Pebble Beach and Marion and, and Shinnecock go on down the list. None of these courses can contain the modern player unless they push the course to the absolute edge and then they're courting disaster. If they, if they give them a, a somewhat benign setup, these guys will destroy it. Or you have to redefine the terms. Uh, you know what actually is par and what actually is a driver. But you know, I don't. I don't even care about par. It's. It's not. It doesn't bother me necessarily that, that Woodland finished thirteen under. It's just that balls were stopping dead on the green out of the no, rough. No, they weren't stopping dead. They were backing up. Were, the guys were backing up six irons. It just. They were. It, the, yep. the conditions are not demanding enough to fully test the players. Yeah. And because the fairways were a little soft, they effectively played wider. So if the fairways are really running, you have to shape the ball correctly. You have to, you have to really be, be driving it well to hold the fairway. But when, when they don't have that much run out, they get wider. And so it just, it was, it was a fun tournament. There was some fireworks, but Pebble never really punched back. And that to me is a little disappointing. It, there was a lot of debate about this. Hey, what's wrong with letting the best players showcase their skills? Nothing. But we have we have four dozen tour events each year that allows for that. The U.S. Open had a different identity. It's a ball buster. It is an oppressive test that pushes the players to the breaking point, ideally. And we, we never had that. It was just they just had too much room to maneuver and too much comfort out there. I agree with everything you just said. But you can't do it with too much artifice. Now, we were talking to, to Jordan Spieth early today, and we talked about the two, th- 2013 U.S. Open at Marion. And those 
fairways were so narrow as to be, they didn't even look like fairways. They looked like walkways in a suburban development. I mean, they look look crazy. Uh, The green speeds were extreme. The rough was extreme. The pin positions were extreme. So they got a guy to win with one over par. Eh, so what? Yeah. You know, what you should have done is regulate the ball and the club and the size of the club and the shaft material way better back then and not take it out on these on these iconic golf courses. So I think what you're saying, there's a lot of truth to it, and I agree with you. The, the U.S. Open identity is very important that it be, as you say, a ball buster. But you can't do it by pushing golf courses to extreme. So maybe they overdid it, as you said. They had 400,000 gallons of water. They should Maybe 200,000 would have been better. Who knows? But maybe they were expecting a drought that didn't come either. I would rather see them, I would rather see them air on this side than on the other side. One million percent. I mean, you, you can't make a mockery of the tournament and the course as the USGA has done. And Wingfoot next year will be interesting because that, you know, the massacre at Wingfoot is a famous bit of golf history. And it is such a difficult golf course. But honestly, I mean, I played out there a couple weeks ago and some of the U.S. Open tees look like they're on a different piece of property. It's still not long enough. And the, nothing's, nothing's long, long enough. I've been saying this for a while. Nothing's not, not even close to, to 9,000 yards to be long enough. And Wingfoot's going to be 7,500. But when you say long enough, then you're talking about par fives that are three shot or yeah. kill two and get close. Yeah. Those holes don't exist anymore. No, I know. So they're still going to face this problem at Wingfoot. Like, you know, those greens are wonderfully crazy. How far are they going to push Wingfoot? And again, I don't care about the winning score at Wingfoot. Like, I don't care about the winning score here. But if Wingfoot is not a a difficult test, then I think the U.S. Open is, we've reached a tipping point where the USGA has just capitulated and said, okay, the modern game has overwhelmed our playing fields. We didn't do anything about it and we could have, and now it's too late. And so now the U.S. Open is going to be a good tournament. Guys are going to make birdies, and we're just going to have to accept it's not the U.S. Open that we've mythologized. And Maybe that's not a terrible thing, but well, I, I don't think we have to wait for Wingfoot. I think that's what this. I think that's what this year's U.S. Open says. That's what this U.S. Open was. I know Pebble's a little different because it's so petite. I mean, it's barely seven thousand yards, and because because you're by the sea and the winds can come up, you have to account for that. Uh, you know, if if they push the course to the limit and thirty mile an hour winds come in, it becomes a joke. Wingfoot, that's it's inland. It's a more controlled environment. Uh, it's not going to be the cool and hot temperatures like we had this week. It's going to be 85 degrees and muggy. We know that already. So if, if they, if they can't make Wingfoot a really challenging test, then I think it's just time to say that the U S open has changed forever. And the players are going to love that. And that was, I mean, that's some of the subtext this whole week is the, the players won the PR battle. They kind of backed the USGA into this, this defensive crouch and the USGA had to err on the side of caution and make it make it more playable. So, uh, based on the based on what I heard from people on Twitter, a lot of them enjoyed it. It was fun to you know it felt like the Masters for a while. Brooks is throwing birdies up, and Woodland's counter punching, and and you know we had Adam Scott was going crazy out there for twelve holes, and I mean it was exciting. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not quite quintessential U.S. Open golf. And as you said, this is, you know, they talk about the June gloom. This is typical. Uh, this is typical Pebble Beach weather. Um. So let, let's talk about a few of the players. I mean, we we talked about the champ. Brooks now, he's he, he could have he could be sitting on three-quarters away the Grand Slam. He's been right there. If you go back to 
the I guess the 2016 PGA. He's had a chance to win basically eight majors. He's picked off four of them. That if you even you know win a quarter of your chances, you're in Jack and Tiger territory. So he's he's been proficient at closing them out, but he's let a few slip through his fingers. Uh, do you think these near misses elevate Brooks' standing, as in this guy's going to be here every time now, or does it does it take away from his aura a little bit? He couldn't close at Augusta, and he couldn't close here. No, I think definitely, in my opinion, definitely elevates him. I think you're going to win a certain percentage of it. I think majors or non-majors, it doesn't matter. It's always been the same. You're going to win a certain percentage of the amount of time. You're going to win a certain percentage of the times that you contend. And as long as he keeps contending, he's going to keep winning majors, and he's going to continue to contend. The only thing that's going to make him not contend is boredom. And this guy doesn't look like he's going to get bored because he doesn't play enough to get bored. Uh, I don't know what he does the rest of his time. <laughs> I guess he watches high school baseball. But I mean, who knows what this guy does? But he just looks like he is not looks. He is. This guy plays golf at an unbelievably high level. I mean, to really watch him play closely is an astounding thing. And um, he's young and he's strong and he doesn't have any distractions. Why shouldn't he just keep doing this? And, uh, you know, if, if, if he if he can win one major for every three times he contends, he could I hate to say this because it sounds so crazy, but he could win eight majors. That's not crazy. He's halfway there. I mean, yeah, that's not crazy at all. Think about how different Beth Page was so long and so hard. And Pebble, this cute little finesse golf course, and he, you know, he, he was right there at the, the bitter end. And Augusta is its own unique challenge. He was right there. I mean, there's no golf course he can't win on, clearly. There's no course he can't win. But let's segue for just a minute. Away, or do, do, you want to con- do you want to continue on Mr. Kepka here? No, I'm already bored. Go ahead. We, we've had this conversation before, but the listeners haven't heard it. Could there be a better swing in golf than King Louie? It's absolute perfection. It looks so simple. And we were just talking about Brad Faxon, with Brad Faxon, about uh, Payne Stewart's swing, which was spectacular in its own way. But that was a big, long, graceful, lazy swing. King Louie looks like nothing can go wrong because it's relatively short. It's so on plane. It's got so much speed through it. You just can't believe he doesn't win every week. I know. Well... There's it's there's a lot more to it than just the physical, right? Because otherwise, Tom Weisskopf would have won as many majors as Jack Nicklaus. I mean, there's if you could put Gary Player's heart in Dustin Johnson's body, that person would have 50 major championships. It's just there's so much to it. And we all know that Louis loves to be ride his tracks around his farm, and he does not he does not radiate a palpable hunger. You know, I think he turns up. And he tries hard, and whatever happens, happens. And I think he's a, or 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 doesn't he? or he doesn't try that hard. Who really? We don't even really. We don't know. even know. And that that's part of his charm, of course. He's got that great, you know, that great gap tooth grin. I mean, he's a he's likable in every way, but um, it's hard. To it be, would be nice to see him pick off another couple majors here. Well, he in part because once you've won at St Andrews, it feels like you ought to. Well, and and he's come so close to Augusta, and if you, those are the ultimate. Courses. If you can, if you can, if you can lose a playoff at the Masters, you can win at the old course. You can certainly win anywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, how about Adam Scott? Same thing. Like he was playing just the most beautiful round of golf I've seen in a long time. He gets the thirteenth hole. He has a hundred yards of fairway, and left of that, he's got 
the entire ninth hole if he wants it. And somehow he fans it OB right. And I tweeted this, and it was obnoxious, but I've played that hole maybe a hundred times. I've never hit a push slice out of bounds. That is so far offline. You can't even believe it. And, and of course, we all know that Adam Scott's swing is gorgeous. How does that happen? Yeah. How does it happen? It, it's really, it's unfathomable. Uh, it, the ball is on a tee. He's got a 460C driver. He's on a flat surface. I mean, we all, everyone's hit bad shots, but it's a controlled environment. And he's got so much fairway there. It's just, un, it's, it's, yeah. and you know, at that point, I think he was eight under and he's got two par fives in front of him. If he could have posted at 10 or 11, who knows? Maybe Gary Woodland starts, you know, squeezing the grip a little tighter and, and things play out differently. And it's just, it's, you watch, you watch King and, and, and not long after that, you know, Louie goes to the 12th hole, long, difficult par three. He almost hits it out of bounds off the toe about 40 yards right, you know, ball on a tee, downhill. It's like, I guess that's U.S. Open pressure. Yeah. What kind of impression did uh, Phil Mickelson's gum chewing make on you? <laughs> it was, it's aggressive. You know, Phil doesn't do anything halfway. If he's going to chew gum, he's going to chew that gum. If he's going to wear a long sleeve shirt, he's going to really wear a long sleeve shirt. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the whole gum I think thing. the green was gum. I mean, I think the gum was green, if I'm not mistaken. It looked kind of green. I, I didn't see it in person, but it was an odd color. What do you think's why? Why is he chewing it in such a big way? What do you think's going on there? Well, I mean, everyone is, is speculating it's CBD gum and People have been texting me in the game. I know for a fact Tiger and Phil are chewing CBD gum. I'm sure you've heard that. Mm. It was it was brought up a few times in the tap room tonight. Like, mm -hmm. first of all, who cares? It's it's not like it's not a big deal if it is, but they won't they won't acknowledge it. They won't, you know. He's Phil saying it's an appetite suppressant. His appetite must be very suppressed because he is chewing that gum like a mofo. Yeah. Well, Tiger, uh, saying, Tiger said the same in Augusta, appetite suppressant. Oh, maybe it was Tiger. I get them all mixed up. You know, Tiger definitely did say that at, at Augusta. Oh, right, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, same principle applies. But it's like, it's a bad look. Yeah. It makes him look nervous and jumpy to me. Like Payne Stewart, when you watch the highlights at Pinehurst in 99, he's chomping on the gum, but... He had a certain elan to it. It was, it was. It was more like a little dentine piece. It was not <laughs> yeah. this wad of gum, and but, uh, he did it more like a ball player. And I think it was sort of an ADD uh, right. remedy of some sort. Ball, that's good. He did look like like he could have been like a 1920s baseball player with yeah. like high stockings. And yeah, he, Phil, he had a lot of style in, in everything uh, th uh, that he did. I think, you know, there's some speculation that it's to relax the jaw and. I mean, which is not so crazy. I remember Pudrick Harrington talking about he was working on different tongue positions and how that would affect his carriage and how it would go all the way through his body. So, okay, maybe there's a physiological thing. I don't know. But it's just funny that, that Tiger and I'm Phil I'm not have buying appetite suppressant at all because chewing gum makes you hungry, if anything. So I, I don't know how it could possibly... There's at, um, there's a big five sportings goods that I go to get stuff for my kids sometimes. They have this gum. It's like, is it affiliated with Gatorade? I can't remember. But it's really good gum. And I sometimes I put it in my golf bag and, and down the, you know, the last, 
for the back nine, you're a little hungry, you're a little tired. I would chew this gum, but that was for like a, a sugar burst because it had so much flavor. And it would, uh -huh. it would actually give me a little boost. So maybe it's performance enhancing in some way, whatever's in the gum. But mm -hmm. I mean, these guys will look for an edge anywhere. It's just, mm -hmm. it's inter it's generated a lot of conversation because it's so visible. Do you realize that I don't think we've, we've we, Tiger has been mentioned here, but very, very much in passing? Well, what were your Tiger observations for the week? First of all, what a tough guy, man. He, he looked on today on Sunday, the first six holes, he looked miserable. Like, I almost expected him to just WD and head straight for the airport. He didn't want to be out there. He's playing crappy. He looks stiff in the cold. What's the point? And yet, he, he just accessed some grit deep down that maybe no other golfers ever had. Roars home with six birdies, shoots a 69, his best score in the U.S. Open in a decade, roars up the board for a pretty solid finish. And it, 69 is his best U.S. Open score in a decade? Yeah. That's it, some statement. I did not realize that. It's just... Um, wow, that tells you what a lost decade it's been. Well, for shooting sure. 69 U.S. Opens is what Tiger Woods' career is really all about. You know, shooting good scores on hard golf courses. That's really his thing. His thing was not the 61. It was the 69 on the hard golf course. No, That's I some statement. Ag agreed. But it was just a monument to his professionalism and his fight, which yep. so many guys just don't have. So I was impressed just from that standpoint alone. But it was definitely disconcerting. He just... He was not sharp at all this week. I mean, he was missing greens with short irons. He never got the putter going. He didn't look good physically. And he talked about it. I mean, I think that he's, the, the, we haven't really f focused on the, the PGA moving from August to May is really going to hurt him. You know, the, no question. The, 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 those cold he needs temperatures. Heat. He needs heat. Um, U.S. Well, Open, okay, it'll be warm at Wingfoot, it could be cold at Torrey Pines. Um, you know, you just it was fairly warm at at, at Augusta this year all year. That helped the British Open. Surprisingly, there are warm British Opens, but this one's not going to be one of them. It'd be extremely right. unlikely. Sandwich can be warm sometimes, but yeah. not in Northern Ireland. It seems unlikely. So you don't want to overstate how much this could or not affect Tiger. But it was disconcerting to hear. You could see it with your own eyes. He just didn't look loose. He didn't look comfortable. Well, he had and the KG tape on. and Yeah, yeah, the tape on. I mean, it, it, it's just the new reality of a Tiger that every week is a little bit of a lottery. How how his back is feeling, how his swing is feeling, how much work has gone into getting him to the first tee. I think we're just beginning to understand how how much it takes for Tiger to, to play his best. And yeah. The Masters win was incredible. It may be that that was, that was the, the top of the mountain and he's never going to get back there again in this last act of his career. And that's okay. He, that victory was such a gift. If you had to vote today for player of the year, I'd vote for Tiger. Only because the impact of that win, the magnitude of it, it shook the whole sports world. It, it touched people who don't even care about golf or sports. And yeah. just think about the, the growth of of Tiger as a person and, and how much the story has evolved and changed. It's, it's really incredible. I mean, a year and a half ago, we thought he might be done. And then last year was this slow crescendo building, the near misses, and then, and then the exclamation point at, at, at the tour championship. 
And then the intrigue that set off of six months of speculation is Tiger back, he's not back. And then the Masters win was so cathartic and so emotional. And now it's becoming clear how much that took out of him emotionally and we're seeing the physical toll. And so now it's can can tiger can this new tiger, how long are we getting to, to enjoy him and and to savor? And I hope that, that Tiger sets that example. This has been on my mind a lot this year about the modern player doesn't let us in as reporters and as fans to a large degree. They they give you glimpses through social media, which we know is not real life, and it's it's highly curated and fake. And then they let, they have their ad campaigns. But you know, when when I I met Ben Crenshaw in the the press building at the Masters for this podcast, it took us a half an hour to walk a few hundred yards because he was stopping to talk to all these reporters that he was genuinely friends with and he had relationships with. It was so neat because it was it was just built on decades of sharing and all all these young players today, they don't they don't give back in the same way. They don't value the written word. You know, Tiger doesn't wanna you think about how many books did Jack and Arnie contribute to? They were the subject of the book. They got no money, they had no control. But someone came to them and said, I want to tell this story about the duel in the sun or about uh, whatever it may be. And they, they were playing the long game. They realized, you know what, this is something that could really be interesting. I want my story told. And it grows my brand. Not that they were that calculated, but they, they saw the value in it. And um, so when we're sitting in the tap room tonight and Jordan Spieth came and just sat down uninvited, that was neat because there was – it's hard to get that kind of connection. And Can you say that he's not a, that he doesn't tweet at all or hasn't tweeted for a year? Yeah. 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 Which, yeah, he said he's off Twitter and pretty much off Instagram. Now, the things still go out under his name, and but we all know that those are agents and PR people, and um, that's how most of these guys do it. Uh, so, you know, Tiger's always been closed off, and he's always kept the world at arm's length. And, it, as you're saying, he, this 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 new introspection and the, this new willingness to share, it's great f- as far as it re- how we relate to Tiger and how we learn about him. But the the trickle down effect is significant. If if all these young players say, "Oh well, look, Tiger Tiger's going to scrum after his practice conferences," I guess I should too. And uh, Tiger is now talking about his inner life. You know, maybe I should I should not be so uh, opaque. And so it's. I I think that um, you know Tiger has always had Jack and Arnie as his guiding lights, and of course these guys all revere Tiger. So I I look forward to that evolution. And our U.S. Open champ Gary Woodland is a nice example. It, you know we talked about at the top. He's a guy who has deep thoughts and deep emotions, and I think for someone who only won three tournaments and really was not an A-list player, there's been kind of an explosion of goodwill around this victory, and I think. It's because of who he is. He's fun to watch. I mean, he kills the ball and all that, but that's not why people have, are invested in this victory. I think it's because they sense there's a depth there that's kind of rare and kind of cool. And he's honest. Uh, and <laughs> we, I think we, we crave that. I mean, last year at the PGA uh, uh, on Sunday night and Tiger shot, what, 64 in the last round of that PGA championship. And I said, you know, and I said, you know, what do the round look like to you? And he said, it looked like he was shooting seventy four, and he shot sixty four. It's just like an honest assessment of what it of what it's like, and 
people are so suspicious now and they really don't need to be uh i don't think they they, they need to be um suspicious of what i think they're just suspicious of other people's motives in general uh you know but i think what we i think a little bit of our mood right now is just coming off that tap room experience where people's guards were down and it's just like uh we all come to this game because it is a great game. And, uh, and as you were saying, you know, uh, in the tap room and, and, and earlier when we were talking, um, there's all this hyper analysis of, you know, Jordan Smith hasn't won since uh, the open championship at, uh, of, of the British open in 2017. He must be really, uh, you know, in knots and upset and pulling out his hair and, we saw a very happy, well-adjusted person. He's doing shots in the, in the tap yeah, room. He's having a great time. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know. So uh, I just think the whole world is too suspicious and should just, like, relax a little bit. And I think that's what we saw today. And I think we saw that in in, uh, in, in the winner, Gary Woodland. Uh, you know, he kept breathing. You know, he said he was really nervous, but he also kept his eye on the prize. And. I don't know. It was a great. It was a. It, it, it was a great week of golf. I, I mean, it was unfortunate. The weather. It was well. I was going to say the weather was unfortunate, but it's actually what you expect to get. In the practice rounds, we saw how spectacular it can be. And in other opens here, they've had some fantastic weather. But anyway, I digress. But what I'm trying to say is, uh, uh, it was a nice way for us to end a long week here. Just seeing people enjoying each other's company, enjoying the game. It doesn't sound like much, but. That's really kind of the whole point of life, isn't it? And even the story I wrote for golf.com, it's really, it was about Justin Rose and Brooks Kepka. And the scene behind 18 was really interesting uh, because there was a, the, the people around them, the parents, the girlfriends, the, um, the agents and handlers, everyone was so grim. And it was, it was like this funeral atmosphere. And kind of tiptoeing around expecting them to be crushed you know because especially you know Brooks was playing for history Justin Rose kind of got exposed out there and you could feel the nervousness in the air and both of them came out and said hey man I tried hard I gave it every all I had and it wasn't enough and And that's okay and you know what they're going to do in about a month they'll play Port Rush right and 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 when that's over they'll play something else and then the calendar will turn and they'll play Augusta I know. Yeah. And, and like you, you and I analyzing Brooks's conversion rate, has he ever even thought about it? Has he ever looked at it? Probably not. He just, he, he hits the ball and he hits it again. And that's kind of the beauty of it. And I think, I think Woodland is a little different. He has, he's a little more uh, introspective, but at the same time, he's got that j- same jock swagger and he's just gonna hit the ball and hit it again. And he just t- did it a few times less than everybody else this week. And, uh, all right, Alan, let me ask you this. Maybe we can... Yes, we got to wrap up. I'm, yes. I'm exhausted. Uh, it, it has been a long week. It's been especially a long week for you. You've been a great host to a bunch of us taking us out for various golf games. Uh, we enjoyed two this week. Uh, the Pacific Grove Golf Course, you can't say enough about it. It's just really everything golf uh, needs to be. Um, it, how many courses do you think should be on the open rota? And yeah. The U.S. Open rotation is what I'm trying to say. I hate that word, Rota. <laughs> I put that in the same category as Mr. Hogan, but anyway, Rota. <laughs> well, Mr. Yeah. Well, Mr. Bamberger, I, I, I think the Rota should can consist of seven. Seven. That's a good number. I think Pebble Beats, 
winged foot, shinny, I know you hate that too, um, pinehurst. I, I think those are the citadels right there. Um, and then you need a little, you need a little variety. So then I like bringing in an LA country club. It's going to be fabulous. Um, yeah, I like going back to Brookline. You know, I haven't been there in 30 wow, years. Uh, that's that's coming up. Um, I, I, I do feel like this tournament belongs to everyone in this country and beyond. And it should it should travel occasionally. If you can find the right venue, Aaron Hills wasn't it. But we shouldn't give up on the Midwest. I mean, the, the golf fans there deserve a U.S. Open. Now, Olympia Field isn't great. I don't love Medina. Like I don't know what the right Midwestern venue is, mm. but it's got to be out there. Um, Unless you consider Oakmont Midwestern. I don't. I mean, I know it's it's not on the coast, but it's East Coast. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, so, but I think we should go heavy on the classics and sprinkle some others in for variety. So, but Pebble starting. It's you know it was every ten years, and then it was nine years, and now we're coming back. In 27, so now it's going to be eight years. So they're tightening up the pebble rotation a little bit, and I think that'd be great. I mean, as discussed earlier, much earlier, we should probably end this podcast. Um, they didn't get the course exactly perfect, but it was still – it was one of the most beautiful telecasts I've ever seen. The, the All those drone shots and the tracers. I Now, when we – you know, we're in the press room typing – they have these giant screens playing the telecast. There's no sound, and so I only I only experience telecast visually. I know some people at home don't love all the announcers and blah blah blah. That's foreign to me because I never hear it, but it just looked great on TV, uh, and I think I think we got a good champ. I think he's going to build on this. And to quote Bobby Jones, "You don't win the Open; it wins you." And I might be paraphrasing. I might have just made that up. But the point is, would it would be cool if Brooks had won? Yes. If Rory had come back to win, that'd be cool. But the right guy won. All, all praise Gary Woodland. And all praise the listeners. For Michael Bamberger, this is Alan Shipnuck signing off from the Lodge at Pebble Beach and the 119th U.S. Open. Thanks for listening. We will do this again soon from Royal Portrush, if not soon. 